next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. Everybody traveling to Lagos has a third mainland bridge story, right? And so do I. Like, I stuck on a third mainland bridge in the back of a taxi, traveling to Ikeja to meet with this glass producer that I thought would be representative for the glass production industry. Uh, spend about four hours in a in a sweaty car trying to cross that bridge and missed my meeting. And so the traffic sometimes works because it builds companies like a circle insight. And so you were able to come up with but your I'm idea on Todd Milan Bridge I'm with the traffic. That without the traffic, Lagos would not be as entrepreneurial as it is. Do you think so? Hey everyone, welcome to episode 6 of Building the Future podcast. I'm your host, Dr. And this episode is brought to you by The Lunga Practice. Are you about to start a new business or running an existing one? You need a lawyer. I have seen a number of startups unable to raise money or miss out on a lucrative deal because they fail legal due diligence. You don't want that to happen to you. This is why you need to have a startup-focused lawyer. The ones that understand your early hustle and are willing to partner with you now. The Lunga Practice is a legal firm that specializes in working with with early stage startups in Africa. When I started getting involved in the Nigerian startup ecosystem, they were recommended to me as a lawyer that understands startups and investors. Since then, I've used their service and so are many orders, including the likes of Flutterwave, Techaba, Printivo, Rayfruits, Ventures Platform, Lagos Angel Network, and many others. To get free consultation as a listener of this podcast, fill out a form on podcast.thelongerpractice.com and one of their lawyers will get in touch with you. That is podcast.thelong.com G-E-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E.com. You can also find a link in this podcast show notes. My guest today is Rob Wittigen, the co-founder of Asoko Insight. Asoko Insight is a platform that provides data and analysis on African companies to global corporates, investors, governments, and potential partners. Basically, they provide visibility and transparency needed for doing business in Africa. They've raised more than $1.3 million seed capital from investors such as Crave Venture Capital, Singularity Investment, North Base Media, Imago Partners, amongst others. I met Rob in 2015 when I was working as a venture partner at Potential VC. I find his business fascinating and I'm convinced it's going to do a lot of good for so many companies in Africa. But more importantly, I find Rob interesting and we've been good friends since then. Rob was born and raised in the Netherlands but has found his calling in Africa. Prior to founding Asoko Insight, he worked as senior editorial manager at Oxford. Oxford Business Group, where he led research teams in Nigeria, Ghana, Gabon, Senegal, and Algeria. He's one of those people building the African future, and I hope you find our conversation interesting as much as I did. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start from the beginning. What is your background and what led you to what you're doing now? Okay. Uh, so yeah, born and raised in the Netherlands, uh, but always had a, a deep interest in, in traveling and that interest uh, was developed over time in traveling into sort of emerging markets, you know, sort of at, at the stages of you know, when you're at the age of 12, 13, you just want to live the life of, uh, of, of, uh, of a Robinson Crusoe or uh, an Indiana Jones. Uh, I developed an interest in, in Africa and, and South America uh, at that particular stage of my life. And then when I went into university and got a bit more into economics and, and management studies, uh, that, that specific ambition took a, a more professional uh, definition. Uh, so as soon as I came out of university, this is my you know, early 20s, I was actively looking for a job in emerging markets. And I got a job... Um, and emerging market you're looking at? Africa or any emerging market? It was at, at that time, I mean, Africa was on the radar, but it wasn't exclusive. Uh, I was looking at, at Asia, South America as much as Africa. I think, you know, the, 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 the commonality between those markets was something that, uh, that is growing rapidly, where not everything is defined, where there's a lot of new space for invention and remodeling of what's already established in, in other parts of the world and where the adventure in an Indiana Jones style but then in a professional setting is still is still around the corner. Um, 
So when I came out of university, you know, th- that was the goal. Find myself a job stationed in, in emerging markets. And What did you study at the university? I did an international business and management studies. Right. Uh, so you're positioning yourself for that. Yeah. So I did, you know, already in my... Uh, in my academic career, I, I got a taste of, of traveling and, and working and living in emerging markets. There was uh, an exchange program with, uh, with, with, with schools in Mexico, schools in South Africa and in Asia. Uh, and, you know, during over the process of that year of, of, of that period, in a very playful way, you get a taste of what it is to live and, and work in these other markets. Um, so got out of university, knew that that was one of the things that I absolutely wanted to see in my future job. So I came across this company called Oxford Business Group, um, macroeconomic research firm specifically focused on emerging markets. They essentially uh, write reports catered towards an investment and, and global business community on uh, countries across the Asian, African, and South American continents. Um, so after a few stints in, in Middle Eastern and, and Asian markets, I was posted to Algeria, which was my first uh, uh, introduction to the African continent. Uh, and after Algeria, I've I've never worked on another continent than than Africa. Uh, so so uh, Algeria is a it's a French speaking country. Yeah, and you are from the Netherlands. That's right. And I know a lot of uh, Dutch speak English as well. Which is is do you speak French as well as English? I do. Yeah. Oh, so so you so while while you're looking at emerging market, you 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 also become multilingual because you want to be Absolutely. ready for any place that you're yeah, posted to. Yeah, I mean, uh, languages has, has, has always been an interest, but I see it as a tool to work in emerging markets as well. You can just show up anywhere in the world and expect that people speak English. And, and most places that is the case, certainly in Africa, but uh, it, it shouldn't be a presumption. So French and, and Spanish uh, is, is another language that, that is helpful when you want to travel and, and, and live abroad. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I picked that up. Um, Algeria was my first country, and after that I've gone uh, south. Uh, so my second country was Gabon, then did Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, and eventually ended my OBG, Oxford Business Group, career in Nigeria, where I spent most of my time uh, out of all those African countries. W- when was this that you were yes, in Nigeria? I arrived there in 20, uh, 2011. Uh, November 2011, and I stayed there. Uh, well, one can claim I'm I'm still there, really. But I I was there with OBG until sort of mid 2013, right? Uh, and that's also where the the seed for launching Asoko was was planted and fertilized. So, what was your role at? Oxford Business Group. I was the uh, the editor on their various country reports. So my job was to interview local uh, members of the business community and, and, and political communities to get an understanding of um, opportunities that existed in every sector, uh, the regulatory climate, uh, fiscal financial incentives that existed for... Uh, outside businesses to come in and set up shop or for outside investors to come in and and look for local opportunities um, and to report on those in a way that was digestible by the international business and and investment community. So the the deliverable of of a project in a country would typically be a report that I would help write and and edit. Um, But the job, and and this is really, I want to get to Asoko, or to, to the creation of a SOCO, the, the job involved a lot of uh, scanning of, of local companies. First of all, selecting companies to to sit down with, getting a good idea of representative companies in every sector of the economy uh, to engage with in order to learn a bit more about their respective industries and to then actively reach out to those companies and, like a typical journalist job, uh, schedule interviews with people uh, ideally high up on the on, on the in, in the organization um, and that process was was tough uh, any you know sort of newcomer into a country like Nigeria or Gabon or other African countries I've been in shares that that difficult um, sort of first step in identifying representative companies of any subsector how do you define the top 10 dairy producers in Kenya or the top five, let's say, uh, rubber suppliers in in Nigeria. Uh, we all know that they're there because there are local industries that work with these firms, but identifying who the top 
selection of this group is. Uh, and in addition, knowing where to get to them and who in that organization to speak to is a task of its of its own. I mean, How do you go about that with Oxford Business Group? At, at the time, it was like, like most people still do it today. It's building out personal networks. It's having a lot of uh, trial and errors by showing up to companies you believe might be in part of that selection and just knocking on the door and say, hey, are you interested in a conversation? Sometimes you're rejected at the door other times you're you're invited in but you over the course of an interview come to the conclusion that it's not the, a right fit of a company you wanted to sit down with so there there is that sort of learning things the hard way in the first few weeks or months you're you're in that country so i'm interested to know what is in it for this company so i want to i want to get two pictures there so you want to so let's say you you want to get an information about the top a rubber manufacturing company in an African country. So you try to select the ones that you think are the ones. Maybe you discover them through word of mouth or newspaper. So you go to them and say, I want to know about the opportunities here and what are the top players and what are your challenges and regulatory right. stuff. What is the need for those companies to want to sit down with you and have that discussion? Well, the need for them is is to find business outside of their immediate uh, ecosystem, right? As as difficult it is for me as an outsider to identify these companies, the, the clients of these companies or investors of these companies are having the same level of difficulty. Um, and all of these businesses, like any other business, is interested to expand their client reach as wide as as possible. And some of these businesses will be actively looking for funding and and are having inefficiencies in the process of, of raising funds. It goes beyond, you know, a, a suboptimal financial administration. That That is already one step too far into the process. It starts with the actual visibility towards a business and an investment community outside of that, uh, of, of their immediate ecosystem. Um, so having gone through that experience myself and having seen the, uh, the the the, you know, the the need to essentially reinvent the wheel of identifying key companies and key individuals and learning what these the basic activities that these companies do in every single market where I was posted, and my newcomer working for Oxford Business Group would come in the year after me, and other than my information, would have to replicate parts of that process again and again. Show to go out and look go for out, those companies. Yeah, you know, com- new companies have popped up. This. Uh, there was no, th- there's no way of of recycling that that knowledge uh, within the company that I worked for at the time. But the the same is applicable to a wider ecosystem, right? No investor looking at Africa today has a centralized resource to go to where information on, let's say, the top ten dairy producers in in Kenya has been recycled since the day that a first investor ten years ago looked in that specific subsector. And part so there's, there's no way to track progress. There's nowhere to, to track progress, but it also it also means that every investor wanting to engage with this sector has to go through the same painful and expensive route of identifying who these companies are whenever they uh, they come to the continent. But isn't that why they pay companies like Oxford Business Group to do that for them? And then Oxford Business Group will have a repertoire of data that they can then get out and say, yeah, we've got this data on all these companies in um, a part of Africa. Oxford Business Group could have done it, but didn't do it. I mean, their their main uh, business model was writing macroeconomic reports and, and, and selling those, focusing on the actual players in the industry, even if that information was documented internally, wasn't part of their commercial offering. Right. That's why Ahsoka was created. Okay, so what, what it did, what it hold Vanguard of that kind of uh, like also business group did was just to get to do research um, at a top level, the macroeconomic research and write report in a way that is digestible for people that want to make decisions or people That's that right. are looking for investment in Africa. And they sell this periodically. So, okay, top trend in financial sector in Africa. So That's they, right. That's what they do. So if you're looking for detailed and progressive or trackable report or, or, or information about a particular sector, you don't get that. And that's where... No, yeah, it, it's the company information in particular that is, that is, that is lacking. So Oxford Business Group would, would gather their information by talking to local companies, but they wouldn't document who these local companies are or what they do. 
um, and and that is a critical part in in the, in the in the in the research process for any business, right? I mean, you start at the top, which country, which sector, which subsector should I be looking at? But eventually, you always get to the point of the companies to engage Who are the with people that I want. Yeah, and that last mile is lacking. So there's a whole lot of supply around you know and, and Oxford Business Group is one of many uh, of macroeconomic and, and sector level analysis one can buy a report online that is regularly updated and, and be informed in that way that last mile of now understanding who to engage with and and how to compare one company uh, with another in, in a way that's apples to apples that that is lacking and and the reason why that's lacking is partly because uh, you know, even we're dealing with infrastructure issues of of internet connectivity. Not every company has a, a a a traceable website or updates their information on their website regularly. The corporate registries in these countries, who are repositories of that information, aren't always digitized. If they are, they're not always publicly available. So there's a number of reasons why that last mile is lacking. Um, but we believe that there's a commercially viable way of, of bridging. So, that so I'm going to get to the challenges of why the last man is lacking and some of the challenges that you might be going through now, so coincidentally trying to aggregate that, those data. But I want to, I want us to discuss how you get to your aha moment. So, okay, I'm, I've been doing this with, as a coincidence for some time. I should be building something that solves this last mile data problem. And, and how do I? Uh, and how do you move from that realization that you, you should be solving that problem to actually taking the first one or two steps to do it? Two two things kind of aligned. Well, three things aligned. Um, one was the personal frustration of having to go in my sixth African country and again, like building up this basic database from scratch. Hit a uh, hit hit sort of a, a a low point when everybody traveling to Lagos has a third mainland bridge story, right? And so do I. Like I stuck on a third mainland bridge in the back of a taxi traveling to Ikeja to meet with this glass producer that I thought would be representative for the glass production industry. Uh, spend about four hours in a in a sweaty car trying to cross that bridge and missed my meeting and so like, the traffic sometimes works because sometimes, in these companies like a circle insight and so you were able to come up with but I'm a fun believer Milan bridge I'm a fun traffic. believer that without the traffic Legos would not be as entrepreneurial as it is today Do you think so look at all the I mean the the, the creativity the innovation of of people hawking everything they can find to the cars stuck in traffic it's amazing you can yeah but <laughs> You I get, get that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. But it's, there's a lot of uh, there's also the argument that there's a lot of um, economic um, time, um, uh, uh, time that's been wasted, and a lot of economic output that are just no. I guess my my point of, is that it it forces people to think yeah. out of the box. Yes. I, and I'm I'm not a proponent of keeping Lego's traffic <laughs> the way it is right now. Believe me, but it it is it is in a way creating a business opportunity for others and. People in, in Lagos are entrepreneurial enough to jump on that opportunity. Uh, that aside, yeah. I mean, it was that moment where you know you're you're basically wasting, to your point of inefficiencies, wasting half of your day, of your day to get to one meeting that is then missed because you were stuck in traffic. I'm like, I th- there should be another way to do this. There should be another way to gather at scale information, basic information on companies without having to spend four or five hours in traffic and, and hoping that you that you end up at the right door. So that was factor one. Factor two is a similar company, or at least an inspiration to a Soko in the Middle East called Zawiya, uh, got bought up by Thomson Reuters. Uh, now, Zawiya started in the early 2000s in a very similar mindset as, as, as we have set up a Soko of disrupting the way global business and investment uh, firms are are engaging with Middle Eastern companies. Um, They did a tremendous job, rolled out for about 12 years, and then were acquired by Thomson Reuters. And they had the same challenge as well of getting the the information in a 
in a more centralized way and, and and that a lot of companies don't have this data online or, or they're not even hoping about it do, do they have a kind of challenge as well there's there's definitely that commonality okay. yeah uh, I mean, the Middle East is obviously a completely different part of the world than, than Africa. It's a lot less uh, heterogeneous, and and that that gives um, that gives certain advantages when you're trying to centralize a, a corporate data collection uh, operation. But in terms of yeah, the 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 the, the lacking infrastructure around data, certainly there it, it's similar. Um, so that instance, other than there being you know an, an, an interesting exit opportunity for any company setting up in that space, also showed global appetite in emerging market corporate data, right? Uh, and the fact that Africa was, you hear this cliche phrase all the time, but the, the, the final frontier on that front. There's no dedicated corporate data solution in Africa, just like Zawiya was one in the Middle East and just that like others are existing in other parts of the world, the global data guys are chasing these and, and bringing them into their offering because there's a demand from it from their clients, but there's nothing for them to look at when you, when you look at Africa. And the third uh, factor was my co-founder came to Nigeria, uh, Greg, very similar background as I have, emerging market passion uh since uh since as uh, since the day he could walk um worked for the same company as as i did got posted to nigeria we worked on the, on a project together and then uh after a couple of whiskeys in a, in a victoria island bar came up with the idea of setting up a business and, and doing say, something about she did this together exactly so you and your co-founder ideated it together from absolutely from the, from the go so you were just discussing a problem and you said actually somebody needs to build this yeah you know like i i, I had been with uh, with the company a little longer than greg did at the time so i i showed him the the excel sheets that i'd build up in my years of employment for this company and we looked at it together and we said if this is done in a way that is scalable and presented in a way that makes sense to an investor sitting in New York or London there should be a business model for this right that there's got to be a way we can pull together the resources uh, to address that very visible problem that everybody in, in our industry is suffering from as well as another industry so what was the next step that you guys took after you came to the realization that you need to build a business that will essentially disrupt your existing industry or that will maybe compete with your existing employers. Yeah. How did you, what was the next step that you took and how did you say, actually, we can do this together and what did you do after that? Yeah, I mean, we, so after this idea, we needed, we needed some, some type of funding, right? So we both pulled together whatever little cash we had at the time and, and whatever our aunties and, and parents would give us. Uh, which wasn't uh, enough to, to get anything out of the business. But and both of you are based in Lagos at that time. Yeah, we were both so, based in Lagos. And you wanted, and you registered a company in Nigeria? Or uh, you, no, we, we ended up, our initial registration was actually in Delaware. Greg is from the US. Delaware is an easy place to register a company. Um, uh, so that, you know, over, over the internet in, in a few hours that was done. Uh, but then, you know, a few months in, we actually uh, quickly decided to register in the UK because of the uh, investment incentives that exist here for uh, for early stage companies. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so that that decision was taken pretty uh, pretty quickly. In, and in both of you are not UK residents at no. that time. Okay. No. you, we moved here. Well, moved. I moved here. So you did you resign at that? But oh yeah, you, I mean, at, at the point we were setting up a circle, I'd, I'd resigned from. So my you, job. so you, when you, when you decided to build this company, both of you, just okay, the next thing is for you to resign. Oh, okay, oh, yeah, that was the first. Action. That was the first thing. Yeah. Wow. So because there are a lot of people that will advocate, which I also agree with in many instances, is um, a lot of um, when you have an idea as an entrepreneur and you're still an employee, and sometimes you can you have to resign like you, but most of the time. People need to actually validate the idea and find out what is out there by working on a side and just just test it before sure. 
taking the bold move, especially if you don't have another source of income. Yeah. Um, but with you guys, you were pretty sure that you're going to pursue this, and you've not tested it, but you're sure that this is what you want to do. And just yeah. Resign. I mean, there was there was full conviction that this was going to be, you know, the the, the full time project we wanted to work on. I think we both realized very quickly that if if this were to be done in a way that that has any chance of success, it it would need full time dedication. Yeah. That was one. Two is uh, the, the pragmatics of being under uh, an employment contract with uh, a, a macroeconomic research firm makes it also very difficult to do. Yes, s- especially that you're trying to do something that yeah, they should be doing. I mean, something it, it, it's not exactly the same thing as what OBG is doing, but it certainly feeds into the same industry. And one could claim that the resources you you have access to through one. Oh yeah, that's a conflict of exactly. That's a conflict of, of interest. interest. So there. obviously, you know, just just eth- ethics in mind. We didn't want to explore so that so we resigned there were some consultancy uh, stints that we were able to do with our former employer it was very good to us uh, so that we could sustain ourselves in the in the very early stages of the Isoko lifetime but very quickly we realized that we needed to start raising money if if we were to go uh, to be serious about this so that's what we did we we got lucky in the in, in the early stages that uh, almost at the time our, our very early stage angel funding was dried up we won one contract for the German Development Bank uh, who was looking at Nigeria uh, with uh, an interest to invest in uh, leasing providers so they engaged us to essentially profile the 25 biggest leasing companies of Nigeria and give them a recommendation on which ones to uh, to invest in which is very much in the uh, aligned with sort of a so-called business model today, mm-hmm. but uh, it was more of a consulting. It was a consultancy project, yeah. But we, then it gives you enough cash to be able to then if to to, uh, to extend your runway. Exactly to just uh, yeah exactly to extend our 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 runway from one month into six months, and then you know you go through the various stages. So that money was being put to use. We then found two angels who are still with us today, Jonathan Berman and, and Stephen Grin. Uh, Jonathan Berman is our independent board member today and, and Stephen Grin is is a follow-on investor who saw potential in what was at the time not much more than a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and they put in some uh, some early stage cash, just enough to get us into seed fundraising mode uh, and that was really like the official kicker for the business. We raised 1.5 million, I want to say 12 months into, uh, into the company. Into the company. So uh, uh, before we get to that, where you raise um, your seed or your, your first big capital, um, you both of you are not, you don't have tech background. That's right. Uh, what you're trying to build is data, but you can only build it while using technology, right? That's right. So how did you go about building your tech? We recruited a very smart tech person. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the best way to describe it. So our our very first member outside of uh, Greg and myself was Jason Elcock, uh, who's... Uh, who is a a wizard he's an information architect uh per sang he's worked for sage uh for uh the better part of his career up until the time he joined soko uh, and uh and and joined us when uh, when we had no funding at all and he's uh, based where he's based in dublin he's based in dublin so he joined you full-time full-time uh, at at nothing more than than sweat equity uh, interesting know, when there was no how did you manage to convince him because that's the one of the hardest bit for non tech co found non tech non tech founders to get very strong and well experienced CTO to join the the team or yeah. or, or or a tech person to join the team when they don't have money. Yeah, you know, it's. It, uh, I think we got lucky, first of all. I think we got lucky that uh, we met Jason at the time that we met with him. Oh, so uh, you don't know him before? You no, met we, him. I was I was introduced to him. We have a, a common common friend in Ireland who who knew uh, the the business I was uh, I was working on and and knew that Jason was looking for a change from his uh, his career. Uh, and particularly looking at Africa-focused startups, Jason is South African himself, uh, so has a has a passion for the continent. I was looking for the right opportunity to jump in, and and after a couple of phone conversations and uh, and seeing the early stage traction that we had uh, realized for ourselves, Jason saw an opportunity uh, to uh, to come on board as as our CTO. 
uh, and has been with us since. So you built your architecture and and help you translate those ideas that you have into a tech platform. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, he uh, he educated us on how to translate business ideas and requirements into tech development. Yeah, I've been there. I know that. I'm uh, a CTO and I'll just write something that needs to be done. So you need to translate into stories. Exactly. So I want this and then you need to prioritize it. Use cases and, and then, validation. And, and then, yeah, and then some, when I, my, my first startup, it was, I don't know the difference between back end and front end. I don't know that there's the infrastructure. So I just wanted things to be done and my CTO always tell me uh, if you do this one that means we're taking enough people away from doing some of the big ones Uh, you need to prioritize what needs to be done and how do you want it to be done and what is the full story so I've been there I get educated uh, a lot by my CTO that's absolutely and you know initially you're like why does this take so long why would I you know I see a quick fix why wouldn't we just do it it takes a while, and, and to Jason's credit, uh, a lot of patience on his side for a non-tech founder to understand that, in fact, there's a whole lot more that needs to be done in that before you see that stuff. Yeah, happening. and a quick fix might not be such a quick fix if you were to do things sustainably in a way that doesn't just you know kill a fire, but actually stops a problem. Did he educate you about um, technical debt that... I mean, I get that a lot. So you can get a quick fix because as an entrepreneur, you know, you, we want things and we want it now. Yeah. We want it very quickly. Yeah. And and then you want it to be done. And then I say, actually, there are two ways. Okay, You can just get a quick fix. Quick. So my city, um, Nick Tordo said, there's quick and dirty option. Mm-hmm. And it's the proper way. We have to build it back end. We have to build this before it's done. Um, the good thing about the quick and dirty is you get it now. So right. you get it but. But on the bad side of it is that you accumulate debt, which exactly. you have to pay. Exactly. And then a technical debt, <laughs> maybe, and it accumulates interest. So when you get to the place where you want to be something that is scalable, you have to pay that debt. And some of the costs you have to remove and stuff. So I get educated uh, a lot exactly. about that. And, and looking back now, four years later on, uh, on, on the the tech priorities we imposed on our CTO. I mean, we, we've made some big mistakes uh, in building up exactly as you, as you, as you branded tech, tech depth. Uh, and I can't say we were not uh, forewarned by our CTO, but uh, stubbornness and, and ambition to, uh, to build a platform in a way that you as a founder think it should be built leads to inevitably some of those bad decisions. Uh, we've come a long way since and we fully embrace the agile development philosophy um, you know and we've had to self-educate very quickly uh, to understand how that how that works right because on the business side I mean you meet a client you agree on a proposal and the next day you want to deliver you want to delight this client as soon as you can and there's no sort of prioritization of I'm going to deliver this to you now but next week you'll get a bit more no you want to give them the moon Um and that doesn't work on the tech side of things. So you need to gradually iterate and, and move towards a a situation where, where that client can be delighted in a sustainable way. We, we've we've come there now. So tell me about your business model. So the, the way I understand it is you build in the technology, you build a technology that enable um, your users who are investors or, business or, or businesses outside the continent, even within the continent, where they can get micro information about private companies that is not easily accessible okay so they can get some of the time they can get um you can get public information but we can get information about public companies but my but private companies in africa is not correct it's not accessible and it's not open so you, what asako inside is doing is giving visibility to those kind of businesses yep. so it's a tech platform it's a database that you can go to and filter and understand what that's it so it's a subscription-based model. Subscription-based model. You don't have like clients that you have to do special report for, or do you? Uh, do we that? do. We do. We, we have a bit of capacity to deliver bespoke projects. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, I think the the nature of the data business is there is always a level of customization that a client wants to see. Okay. Uh, but you know, we we try and keep it minimum. You know, we're building a scalable business, uh, platform focused. So ninety-five mm-hmm. percent of our client interaction goes through the platform in a standardized way that is mm. accessible for so which countries have you been covering or be collecting uh, data? so we started in ghana was our, our pilot country uh, why ghana 
Because Ghana, I mean, I I'd spent some time in Ghana myself, so there was a personal familiarity with with that country, uh, and it also has uh, the comfort of being uh, manageable size-wise, and I guess somewhat uh, more friendly on the operational expenses. I mean, it, it's uh, compared. Was to it because market. you have to be there physically? Yeah, so I mean, phys- we the way we started was essentially just hiring bright students from um, from some of the best universities, a chassis in, in Ghana, uh, and have their support in building up a corporate database that spanned the country. Right. So at at the time we were just gathering, let's say, 100 companies per every sector. Uh, contributing value to the economy. So they have to go out there, like what you used to do, but yeah. just get data, exactly. information everywhere about a particular company. Very, very manually driven, mm-hmm. going, knocking on door-to-door with essentially a, a data form and getting executives to, to fill out that information. Uh, where possible, they would sit down with corporate registries or, or uh, private sector associations and see if they could gather some of that information in bulk. But most of it was really just a, a survey-type exercise of, of gathering basic information on, on hundreds of companies. And, and how are you updating this data after that? At, at the time, we were updating it manually. Mm-hmm. Uh, every six months, we would go back to the same companies and essentially repeat the process. So you needed an army of, uh, of, of young uh, professionals that was willing to do that. Uh, the incentive for them was their exposure to many companies across the continent or across the, the country that they were uh, working out of. And the and the networks that they would build for themselves, but obviously it, it's uh, it, it's not a uh, the easiest job to motivate a a, a graduate uh, mm-hmm. intellectual resource for. Um, but that was how how we build up our MVP, focused on Ghana. Uh, that took us into the stage where we could raise some money for it and do things smarter in our next two countries, which were Nigeria and Kenya. So what you mean, when you say smarter, what do you mean by that? So in Ghana, we discovered that uh, the partner model it really is an essential element of the data collection strategy that, that Asoko uh, employs uh, around the continent right now. So our first stop are private sector associations, chambers of commerce and corporate registries. Because they have some existing data anyway. Exactly. They have repositories which they're not always uh, able to share with us, but at the very least they'll they'll be able to indicate us to the companies that we should focus on. Are our, you selective about the companies you're going after? We, we have What's the criteria? Yeah, uh, criteria, minimum uh, annual turnover of $500,000. Okay, so the companies that you're tracking or you're putting your data are companies that are doing decent turnover yeah i already. mean they're, they're established i mean they're, so they're not like startups they're not startups no they're they're they're, they're companies that are looking at uh, at private equity funding uh, or looking to take their business international uh, whether by by teaming up with international clients or suppliers or what have you that that's sort of the typical denominator of, of companies on our on our platform how do you get the revenue data that's a tough one and this is exactly why um why we sit down with these partners as, as a first stop. Uh, we rarely get a full list of carefully categorized companies based on their annual turnover. That, that is just not realistic right now. We're building that data ourselves, but it, it's impossible for us to get that up front. Um, so in the absence of hard revenue numbers, we go on qualitative indicators. Um, has a company been around for three years or longer? Does a company do business with international clients? Um, do we get validation of a company falling above that threshold for more than than one independent source? I mean, there's some. And you look at their yeah, physical trackable assets. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we'll visit the company, and and if it's a transportation company with a fleet of fifty trucks, then we have an idea of where they should fall versus one that has one or two trucks, right? So. There's uh, certainly in the early stages a lot of qualitative assessment as to which companies should be on our radar. Then again, we we typically start with the biggest, right? And you just work your way down. It typically is not impossible to understand the number one or two in in a in a sector. So how many how many countries are you tracking now in Africa? At the moment, five. Five countries in Africa. Um, so and that's Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa. 
No, not South Africa. On, on West Africa, it's uh, Nigeria, Ghana, and Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire. And in East Africa, we cover Kenya and Ethiopia. Uh, Kenya and Ethiopia. Yeah. Okay. So, at the moment, you build a you build a tech that that can track that. So, if I'm a subscriber, I was to go inside. I could go there and say, I want to know the top logistic companies in Ethiopia, yeah. or I want to know the top um, um, financial. Um, inclusion company in Ethiopia or because I want to be an e-commerce platform and I want to know who will be my suppliers or who will be my customers and, and then you can actually really go into a circle instead and get this kind of information that's right including the contact details of those yeah. so what you get is uh, I mean, we, we cover five main segments per company so registration details would be one this is typically the information that a corporate registry would hold so you get their registration ID, the shareholders, the subsidiaries, the identity of a parent company if, if, if it is there. Uh, two is a breakdown of the management and, and director's team. So uh, typical C-suite and then the board members with their contact details or at least as much information on their, on their identities as we've been able to find. Uh, three is the value chain. Uh, so an overview of the clients and suppliers and partners or projects that these companies might be involved in or with. Um, four is the, the, the financial uh, and, and operational KPI section. Um, operational KPIs could be an, an, any metric that a sector uses to uh, expresses the performance of their, of their companies. So whether that's a production capacity or uh, an average revenue per user, uh, whatever the, the specific metric might be, we, we cover that in addition to an indication of revenue. That's, mm. that, that's what we're able to do at this point with machine learning, and we can go, about, uh, we can go into that in, in, a, in a little so bit. So who are your subscribers? Who are the typical um, subscribers at the moment? Three main segments. One is, is investors. Uh, by far the, the most strategic client group for us at, at this point. Private equity guys, direct investors, uh, DFIs, uh, but also M&A and investment banks. DFIs mean development financial institutions. Yeah. Okay. So you think of your, yeah, your development banks, uh, IFC, EIB, uh, African and, Development And then in private equities, both on the con- in the continent and outside the continent That's as right. well. Yeah. And what was, so you said three, so... Uh, the other two segments are corporates. Uh, so basically, companies looking to either develop their business, their client base, or their supplier base on the continent. And the third segment is the advisory space. So anything from uh, a risk advisory to a management consultancy or uh, a financial advisor uh, is is, a, is, a, is part of that segment. And uh, how many subscribers have we got now? At the moment, we have uh, we're at about seventy subscribers. That's kind of good. Yeah. And then I assume that these guys are paying a lot. Yeah, they're paying. Is your subscription uh, monthly or annually? It's it's an annual subscription. Um, and uh, I mean, our, our fees are are, are are I would say competitive. I mean. It, if you look at the alternative options out there uh, of getting the same information as what as what we're providing you're you're forced to hire a consultant or do the work yourself essentially well, you're gonna pay like eight, 60 70 or 80 something i mean it depends on the, yeah it depends on the scope of the work but a five digit dollar number yeah uh, for a very specific well-defined scope of work is is the going rate uh, typically and they will not get all the breadth of exactly. the information that you make. And, uh, so what, what is your typical um what is your average subscription then it's at the moment we have two products mm-hmm. uh, standard access is two thousand dollars per year uh, That's low and premium access is five thousand dollars a year yeah that's not a lot actually a year that's right um because i was trying to compare you to cb insight and cb insight is the cheapest it's about a thousand five hundred dollars a month yeah or no or more than that i think about three or four thousand yeah. dollars a month yeah okay so so you're relatively um uh, competitive yeah. and who are your major competition um, in Africa at the moment um, there's no there's no it sounds a bit arrogant when I say but there's no, there's no company out there that, that is doing what we're doing and I can say that with full certainty what what we what we're competing with is a Nigerian consultant looking or specialized in agro processing that gets a call from a private equity firm in London saying, "Give me the twenty-five top profiles in the agro processing space." You know that is our that is our our competition. Do you see those kind of 
consultant you using asoko inside later on. i do absolutely i mean we're 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 never going to be a substitute for that for that level of depth that that a consultant based in a local market can provide uh we can uh we can make the initial stages of this person's work a whole lot more efficient than than what it is now and we can recycle the data that he would capture in those initial stages for any client looking to consult that that data Uh, so we then become a resource for that same person to help him or her save time in that initial pre-screening of companies uh, so that they can spend their more valuable time on doing deep dives on a specific company or individual. So in a way, you can provide a bedrock of information that consultants um, can go to first because they, because if I'm commissioning a consultant, I'm a PE guy in, in Germany and I'm a commissioning a consultant, um, I can get access to the data, but I needed somebody to actually contextualize the data for me. So the consultant can actually subscribe to a sequence and get the data instead of traveling and being stuck on Tom and Bridge and, and going to um, um, the company. They can get the data readily available from a sequence and then deep dive into the data and draw out the conclusions and the context that the private equity needs and be able to come up with some uh, conclusions and, and some recommendations. So do you see that as one of the key things that, because I'm trying to understand how big this can be, because there are a sizable number of private equity over time that will subscribe to it. It might not be, at the end of the day, maybe 200 or 300 private equity that will be looking into Africa. Yeah. But do you see the big picture would be actually not just private equity and all those companies, but there will be consultants, there will be journalists Absolutely. and companies. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can give you a breakdown of how we see the addressable market, but Uh, I think you should look at it this way. Any any business, whether you're a corporate, a, a consultant, or an investor, looking to engage with African companies uh, is is a potential client of a SoCo, right? I mean, and anybody uses uh, Google search for a basic sort of company identification uh, in in most Western markets, where that information is is publicly available. We are the go-to resource for companies looking to access that type of information, the, the preliminary due diligence on any African company. So the, the market for that information is, is, is big. And it's not just limited to non-African entities. It's also African corporates uh, and investors themselves. Uh, one example is uh, a, a large telecom operator in Nigeria. I, I can't give you the name, but they're, they're a client of Asoko um, and use the, our Nigerian database for their own business development. They have a good understanding of the tier one clients, but they have no idea of, of how large the tier two space is. The SME type clients that they would want to sell to, where obviously the opportunity, as we all know, really lies, but they don't have a an efficient database on that space. So they use us. So you're now getting into use cases of business development, lead generation, uh, competitive screening, due diligence for investment purposes, general research for private sector developments. All of those use cases need that level of company information that Soko can provide. That's awesome. So I have two more questions for you before we go to the uh, final round. What are the key challenges that you see in you gathering this data? Because data has been a major issue in Africa when you talk to everyone. Um, you're, you're not relying a lot on the field researchers anymore now because you want, to be, you want it to be more scalable. Um, so in your new model of collecting data, what are the key challenges that you face? So technology is going to be the, the future of our company and machine learning in particular. Uh, we'll, we'll always need a level of, of, of human contribution to our data collection exercise. Because machine learning will always depend on data. Exactly. It needs yeah. to be, I mean, it's a living thing, right? Mm -hmm. it, needs to be, it needs to be fed fresh data and, and there's manual uh, contribution necessary in that process. But once the machine is fed, then machine learning can do tremendous things. It can project revenue figures on companies based on a number of, of influences on that company, whether at, at sector, company, or, or macroeconomic level. Uh, machine learning can also uh, project data points where we're currently not at current data points, where we're, where we're currently not able to, to get access to those data points. So back to my example of the transportation company with 50 trucks, if, that, if we know that that company has a revenue 
number of let's say a million then we can make a speculation of the revenue number of a similar company with five trucks right there's an immediate correlation between asset size and and projected revenue numbers machine learning can do that at scale over tens of thousands of companies on which we have gathered a little bit of data so that for us is the future right now we're investing heavily in data science uh, and in the technology functionality as, as far as platform is concerned that would allow for uh, the user to digest and, and how and big is your team it. now uh, 25 overall uh, 15 people on the on the data collection and analysis side uh, and our, our tech team really is quite small today it's only three people uh, but we're, we're actively building that out and then they're based where or your uh, team so I mean quite spread out uh, we've London is our headquarters so we have about five people here uh, but the 15 research-related uh, staff all sit in African markets, divided over, well, four countries today. So Ghana, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Uh, and then um, our CTO sits in, in Dublin, uh, and he works with uh, a team lead who sits in Germany. Uh, we have developers uh, in Nigeria, uh, and and we've got salespeople in in New York and Canada. So the it, beauty of remote work it's, you know, working in, in today's business world that there's no need to all be in the same building yeah uh, so and and i think we're the embodiment of that i mean already in our, our first year of existence we were operating in three different continents and and that's the, the nature of our business so the second question i have for you is about you are you are you you sit in a, an advantage position of looking at companies not, not necessarily startups but companies and private companies in africa and you have some access into what is happening, the trend, the opportunities. What do you see as the, A, the big trend that is coming out of Africa now, solving big problems? And, and what are the opportunities that you see there that will emerge over time? It may not be visible now, but from what you're seeing in terms of the data, in terms of opportunities, in terms of what you're hearing that will emerge as the big opportunity that nobody's talking about now. You know, what, what we're... We're operating in a niche space. We do corporate data, so we're we're we're, we're trying to scale this aggregation of of company information. Uh, but that same practice is happening in other parts of of the data sphere, which is a very you know, has a very wide definition. Uh, and other parts are much more advanced than the corporate data uh, sphere at this particular moment. Looking at um, at at whether patterns and agricultural commodity information. I mean, what's happening in that particular space is tremendous. There's a company called Grow Intelligence who started out in Kenya and are now operating at a global uh, scale, basically looking at weather patterns and impacting uh, and, and predicting the impact on commodity prices around. They're the looking at weather patterns and using that to predict commodity prices exactly. in Africa. In, in, they started in Africa, but now they're doing it worldwide because obviously that, that data is available in every corner of the world and they're selling access to their platform to hedge fund managers and very large investment organizations very dependent of that of those prices going up or down. And at the same time, a local farmer in Kenya will have access to the same information at, at much lower cost, if anything, obviously. Interesting. To see what... Uh, when they should plant and exactly. what they should do based and, on the weather part. what price the, the, the flowers can be sold in the local so, market. So I met a guy, um, forgotten his name now, and he's going to kill me for this. And w and I was doing some business mentoring in London and he was there and from Nigeria and he's built a very interesting platform that give information to farmers in the rural area in Nigeria about weather and the topography and when they should plant, how big their farm is and other stuff using satellite data and also some weather patterns to just inform farmers about how and, and when they should uh, plant and, and in order to grow right. better yield. And so but what this guy is doing, what, what uh, the company you're talking about is doing seems very interesting that they can sell that they can predict commodity prices so they can do go to a micro level to farmers and tell them using data to tell them how to do stuff yeah. but they can also predict on the macro yeah. <laughs> macro level to people that depend on the commodity prices and, to and go up this, or down yeah and like bringing this back to a circle for a second i mean this is this is the ideal use case of data right so you're 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 serving a, a global user base that is willing to pay the price for it but you're also serving 
local companies who who either are the providers of the data in the first place or are at the very origin of that 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 data impacting sort of the real economy and and in this particular examples uh, case it's it's farmers in our case it's african privately held companies yeah. looking for business so the data then serves a greater bottom line than just you know subscriber uh, revenues. It also serves to uh, the strategic benefit of the companies making that av- that data available. In the yes. So, so that goes back to the question I asked about what are the emerging opportunities that you've been seeing based on the data that you have now. So let's assume that you are the one, you grow intelligence that is trying to look at weather weather patterns, weather forecasts to predict pattern of commodity prices. You have access to some information about companies and which sector might be struggling in those five countries that you're operating in. What are the key trends that you are seeing at a macro level? I see, um, just sticking to the data side for a second, I see a gradual... um, transparency arising in in access to data uh, whether it's consumer data or financial information on individuals or businesses or uh, weather patterns and and agricultural commodity evolution like there's there's an increased access to pockets of data that are that are starting to drive the economy in a way that that is new to Africa um, we're moving away out of that informal relationship-based um, way of doing business to uh, a much more structured and informed ecosystem of data predicting actual economic trends and setting priorities for businesses. I mean, I, I think if you were to kind of generalize what's happening in the data space, I think that 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 would be that would be the high level of it. So you see a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely, and it's not just opportunities for a business like mine in terms of finding an entrepreneurial opportunity. It, it, the bigger impact uh, lies for companies on the continent who are benefiting of that data, right? So that's I think that that's the key goal that we should all strive to achieve. Well, what about the talent? We need, we need a lot more. We need a lot more talent. I mean. Um, Data scientists, in particular, are are very hard to find. Uh, there's a, a big dearth of uh, of of good talent in that particular space, and in particular in Africa. I mean, most of the data scientists that will reply to applications that our company puts out um, are are coming from the US and from the UK. You know, where where the schools uh, have have jumped on the data science sort of uh, trend a few years ago, and now are starting to push out the right talent. It's it's hard to find that in African markets today, unfortunately. So there is something there for somebody to start Absolutely. building, uh, maybe a talent accelerator for data science. Absolutely. Is right. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to have about f- four question fire round. Is within thirty seconds, you can just answer this question. I'm going to be asking you a few things, and then you just. Okay, Tell me. So, I'm ready. Ready to go? Yes. So what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Selling it to a non-Africa educated community. So business development to non-African um, right. subscribers. Exactly. And what is your number one growth metric that you measure to indicate how your business... Subscriber base. Subscriber base, yeah. What book are you reading at the moment or has made impression on you in the recent... I just time? finished Elon Musk's uh, biography. That's quite good. I had I had a good review about that. And yeah. um, which business is getting you excited apart from Asuko Insight in the continent? I would say Flutterwave. Flutterwave is getting you excited. Why? It's you know th- there's a lot to say about fintech, uh, and it's a very fragmented space at this point in time. I think right now we're reaching a stage where you see one or two companies taking over and and dominating the the movement. I think Flutterwave will be one of them. That's good. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, Rob, it's been a pleasure and I really enjoyed the discussion. I think we went deep into so many things that you're doing. I get more understanding from it and I hope all of our listeners will get a lot of understanding from it as well. Absolutely. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Lunga Practice. Are you about to start a new business or running an existing one? You need a lawyer. I have seen a number of startups unable to raise money or miss out on a lucrative deal because they fail legal due diligence. You don't want that to happen to you. This is why you need to have a startup-focused lawyer. The ones that understand your early hustle and are willing to partner with you now. The Lunga Practice is a legal firm that specializes in working with early-stage startups in Africa. When I started getting involved in the Nigerian startup ecosystem, they were recommended 
recommended to me as a lawyer that understands startups and investors. Since then, I've used their service and saw her many orders, including the likes of Flutterwave, Techabar, Printivo, Rayfruits, Ventures Platform, Lagos Angel Network, and many others. To get free consultation as a listener of this podcast, fill out a form on podcast.thelongerpractice.com and one of their lawyers will get in touch with you. That is podcast.thelongerpractice.com. You can also find a link in this podcast show notes. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.